just got to practice. You've got to be confident going into it that whatever you do on race day, you've done it a million times before in training. If you haven't, then you're not going to rise to the level of your expectation. You will fall to the level of your preparation. Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 40. Today, I'm joined by elite cyclist Dan Bigham. Dan is not only a multiple track cycling champion and record holder, but he's also a very talented engineer. Currently, Dan works as a performance engineer under Sir David Brownsford at the Ineos cycling team. In the past, he's not only been an aerodynamics engineer for Mercedes Formula 1, he's even worked for me. In this episode, we explore what it takes to win in cycling and how you can apply that to your own motorsports. There are more parallels between motorsports and cycling than you might think. It was a real pleasure to catch up with Dan again, and I really hope you get a lot from the show. So, without further ado, grab your notepad, grab a coffee, sit back, and let's hear what Dan has to say. You may know that at the end of Season 1, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. So welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me today. It's, uh, it's been a little while, but it's good to catch up. Look, thank you so much for taking the time. Dan has a particularly interesting background that I'm sure you will get the chance to explain now, or you will get the chance to explain <laughs> yeah. when I ask you. We have actually worked together in the past, and I thought it'd be really interesting to get Dan on the show to help people listening with their racing and with their motorsports. So your background, I think, is is a little bit as an engineer from a motorsports world, but also now in the world of cycling. And so I thought, well, well, we'll get you on. We'll see how those two compare, see what we can learn from basically cycling and from motorsports. And then, you know, work towards one or two takeaways for people listening that they might think, actually, I haven't really thought about racing or uh, my track day or my motorsport activity. I hadn't thought of approaching it in that way. But if we did, I'd either be faster or get more enjoyment. So how does that sound? Sounds good to me. Brilliant. Okay, well, Dan, tell us a bit about you. Who are you? What are you up to? <laughs> Who am I now? I'm probably a little bit different than I was 10 years ago. Right now, I am an elite cyclist and also a professional performance engineer for a men's world tour cycling team in the Oscar and who people may also previously known as Team Sky, who have won a few big races over the years. But yeah, I kind of spin both plates. I'm on both sides of the fence. I try and ride my bike fast and I try and help other people ride their bikes fast. But my background is... Is much closer to, I guess, a lot of the listeners here. So I, I studied most sport engineering. Uh, I did my undergrad and my master's at Oxford Brooks. I worked in Formula One at Mercedes AMG Patronus in the aerodynamics department back in 2012, 2013. So a decade ago, which is quite scary. I think it's been that long. And yeah, I've obviously worked with you with yourself, Samir. I think you were one of the guys who turned me to, to cycle, uh, to sport, to sport rather than to most sport, uh, and how that, 
everything you learn in, in engineering and in motorsport can be applied and probably with much greater effect in the world of sport. It's, it's such an open environment that, or at least right now, it's this, it's this turn. It's like people have started to understand that physics actually does apply and that there's a huge amount that you can learn with very, very simple processes that it doesn't take a lot to make a big difference in sport once you understand what's actually happening. And uh, just historically, that especially in cycling, people haven't quite considered the laws of physics and quite what's happening. And once you do that, and once you just take a sort of generally pragmatic, progressive approach to, to any sport, really, you can, you can have some really impactful differences. Or, well, <laughs> it can be massive impact at, at some some levels. I think uh, some of the things we've done, we, so I, I set up my own track cycling team. I've competed at World Cups and World Championships. Uh, yeah, we've we've won some some stuff. We've ruffled some feathers and, and had some good fun on the way as well. <laughs> so people can't see this, but you're smiling when you say that, uh, which is which is absolutely fantastic because there's a lot to unpack. But I think the, the main thing there was it's touched on was the physics, and a lot of people are intimidated by it. To be honest, they may have not had you know the best experience at school, and yet we're doing a hobby. Bit cycling or, or motorsports that has a huge physics component in the sense of you're limited by tires and aerodynamics and engine power and all this sort of stuff. So it gets very much into that kind of engineering physicsy world. But how you mentioned there about making some of things simple, you know, some simple things. So what do you mean by that? I think it's basically taking apart whatever your your event is and trying just to distill it down into those kind of first principles things. Everything out there, you, you can make it incredibly complex. And I think people come into motorsport and they see Formula One. And even when I was in there, some of the things I didn't understand that, <laughs> that were going on. And that is genuinely because they're at that level. There's enough resource and finance and people and knowledge to go 10 times deeper than anyone would ever need to in any other sport or motorsport formula. So... In cycling, I think there's a good parallel between amateur motorsport and, and amateur, uh, sorry, elite level cycling. They're kind of very similar in application of physics and the benefits that you can gain and also the sort of competition level. So the financial cost of running, say, a world tour cycling team per athlete is probably very similar to kind of a good formula level amateur motorsport. Um, which I, and the laws of physics actually have a similar kind of bearing on performance. So I think basically it's, it's trying to to break it down into those those simple things that you can tend to measure quite easily. And obviously you've built some awesome Excel tools. You go on, on your website and it's, <laughs> it's it's really helpful actually to break it down because someone's done the hard work. But I think what that means is just trying to educate yourself on on those important things. In cycling, we, we can now distill things down, measure your mass, measure your drivetrain efficiency, your roll resistance coefficient, your aerodynamic drive coefficient. And they're pretty much the four things that matter. And there's a lot written out there and it, it, it's not super in-depth. We're talking kind of GCSE, maybe towards ASA level maths and physics. It's not it's not crazy. You're not having to go out there and do a load of calculus or <laughs> beyond that. It is, it's very simple uh, Newtonian physics that most people can probably pick up with a couple of weeks of just a bit of reading, a few hours every day, reading some forums, going online and just trying to understand how that applies to what they're doing. Well, one thing, I don't know if it's the same, sorry to jump in there, but I don't think, I don't know if it's the same, but certainly in an amateur motorsports paddock, there's quite a lot of folklore. And actually, if I'm honest with you, in a professional paddock as well, 
there's a lot of folklore and, and sort of we've done it this way and this is what works. And sort of broad statements like that over that often have merit, to be honest. They often have some merit. So I'm thinking about, I know, tire pressures or corner weighting of your car or these kind of things where where there's kind of rules of thumb that pretty much work, but they're not based necessarily on everyone understanding those first principles that you say. So is there something similar in like in cycling and, and like that kind of folklore bit? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I was going to say it's a huge problem in cycling. It's not a huge problem. It's a huge opportunity for everybody who is willing to put that aside. It, it's the old school dogma that we've always done it this way. And the amount of times I've heard that, and then you just find the nearest table, bang your head a few times. And, uh, <laughs> that's not a reason to do anything, ever. If you can't justify why you're doing it, and all you can ever say is we've always done it this way, then you, there's no justification whatsoever. You don't understand the logic, the reason, the steps to get there, and you can't move forward from it, right? It might be that that logic is, that, that whatever you're doing is, is perfectly correct and the best way of doing it, but you can't take a step forward because you don't understand what underpins that decision and you don't have a model or some logic or a method to assess that or improve it. It's just, we're going to run the corner weights like this because that's what we've always done or that's what my friend's friend friend told him 10 years ago when we just carried on and that's, that's the way it is. You can't move forward. And if, if that's just the general knowledge and that's how things are done, then you're doing the same thing as everybody else and you can't actually improve. And it, it's commonplace. So, for example, track cycling, uh, the team pursuit, which is the blue ribbon event in track cycling. If you watch the Olympics, it's, it's I mean, all events are equal, but some more equal than others. I think everyone else would answer. And um, I think the, the, the 4K, the team pursuit, is, is the one. And historically, effectively, how it is, and to kind of summarize the event, you race over 4,000 meters, 16 laps. You have four men or four women, three to cross the line. And everybody would do a lap and change, a lap and change. But everyone's physiology is different. Everybody there, and our drag coefficient is different. The four roles are different. The first rider has to work a lot harder to accelerate because everybody behind them has the aerodynamic draft. So the roles are totally different. But historically, everyone just did the same thing. Then to move that forward, you just have to completely pull it apart and go, well, we don't have to do the same. We're all different people. We have different physiologies and we have different aerodynamics. Let's optimize that. Let's do longer turns in some scenarios. Let's do short turns. Let's change to the middle of the line rather than the back of the line. All these things the sport had never considered because it's always been done like that. Why would you ever do it different? But when we, effectively, as a track team, we were pushed into this corner before we had a rider who couldn't ride in the traditional way because he was too weak. And we had another rider who was incredibly anaerobic, but not very aerobic, which basically meant we couldn't get into 4K. So... We changed the strategy completely. We had one rider do six laps from the start. And everyone was like, what are you doing? You're six laps in and you're down to three riders. It's like, well, yes, but also the other three guys haven't been on the front yet. They've had a really easy start. They've recovered from the start, if anything. And the line suddenly becomes a lot more stable. So then we start to do longer turns. And every time you change, you lose a bike length. So if we change half as many times, if they do 10 changes and we do five, then suddenly we're five bike lengths ahead for no extra effort. And all these kind of thoughts... We just went through and all, all it took was to take a step back, understand the demands of the event, put a bit of a model together and ask those questions of the model. And I think it's the same in motorsport. Instead of just going, we've done it like this, actually take a step back and understand what you're trying to achieve, how you can try and model that 
Excel can be great. There's tools out there. Obviously, you've built some fantastic ones. And then ask questions of the model. Okay, you might get to the limits of it. There might be some assumptions in there that are wrong. But often that can lead you in the right direction. I think that that scientific process is the best way to really uncover those gems of progress. The modeling is is definitely, it can really help you. And it's a natural kind of engineering approach. Something simple. The challenge with models often, I find, is that if people aren't experienced using them, is that they almost expect too much from them. I had a guy on the show recently, and he talked about using models as a, this is full engineering language, right? He goes, they're great delta simulators or something like that, right? (laughs) And what he meant was the model isn't going to give you the answer, but it will give you an idea of the direction and the magnitude of a change in something you're interested in. So, you know, if you change these parts of the car, you can expect the behavior to change, you know, in this way, I more understand, and by about that much. It's not necessarily going to give you exactly what's going to happen on the real car, but it, it gives you the direction and makes your decision-making less of a guess, in effect. Yeah, you get those sensitivities. Uh, they're pretty common nowadays in cycling. They've definitely taken a, a lead from, from motorsport of how important is this, this variable? And therefore, should I put a lot of resource into it or very little? Should I try and understand more about it and focus more on it? Or should I just put it to a side, to one side, at least for the time being? It might, you might reassess that in a year or two years time and go, well, I spent two or three years working on these variables. Suddenly that one is actually a lot more important because you're at that cutting edge. You've made those big leaps forward and you You've got to start picking the higher up the tree. But I think it comes down to measuring what matters. If you measure everything, then you, you sort of get paralysis by analysis. You've got so many different variables. You don't know what to focus on. And it's just distilling that down to the things that, one, matter. And two, you can actually do something about. I mean, there could be something incredibly sensitive. But for you personally, it's unachievable to work on, whether it's it could be the aerodynamics and you can't access the wind tunnel as a, as a driver. You might have to take a step back and then think a bit more, actually, well, I know it's important. How can I go about improving this without the normal method? And for example, with those in track cycling, we're much the same. We couldn't access the wind tunnel our first season. We didn't have the finances. We were on a track cycling team of £15,000 and we did seven <laughs> international races. It was tight. So then it was like, okay, well, we're measuring power. And again, it's like sport. you can probably have a good assumption of what your power is. You can, you can get your your torque to uh, speed curves, and then you can have an, an, an idea. And if you know what your identity is and you know how fast you go, you can probably have a good estimate of what your CDA is. And you can start to play about with different wing angles. In our scenario, we're starting to look at different skin suits, different helmets, everything really. Shoes, aero socks were a big one, and it often blows people's minds. But changing from a pair of cotton socks to the right material was worth about seven to 10 watts, which is a phrase that we've used a lot since then, but it actually was about that, which equates to about nearly two seconds in a four-kilometer event. We change our socks, we go two seconds faster. And people are like, but that's just socks. But it's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's just socks, just a helmet, whatever. All it took was that search for sensitivity. And we realized socks matter. Let's work on socks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. And I think I think that's really the message, isn't it? It's a, there's a balancing act here between making something quicker and also making your life easier. And I think in the world of cycling, that has you know, much more of a direct impact because you are, as a cyclist, the engine as well. And I, I love the analogy that you guys have about watts. So you don't really, well, we talk lap time, you know, you talk watts. And it's basically like, if I make this change, how many watts is that going to give me 
it's what's equivalent, isn't it? I suppose of of what you can do as a, as a cyclist yourself. So if I was able to find a hundred watts of compared, then you and I could actually have a race. I imagine, but maybe maybe a few more, maybe two hundred watts. But yeah, but that's the point, isn't it? So you're making your life easier, and that is the message. So, like you say, if you do everything the same as everyone else has done all the time, then you're competing, but you're you're it's much more reliant. So, on a car setup, for example, I don't know. So, this is a question for you about feel. But on a car, you've got this component of the mechanical setup of the car, and theoretically, it is perfectly set up wherever that is for a robot to drive it around the track right let's just say that and then and then you put a driver in it and they get in and they're terrified and they're like well have no confidence and there's no way that they can get anywhere near the limit of this car so so what do you do in that situation well in motorsports we try and adjust the settings of the car the handling so that yeah it's less optimal but it's actually faster overall do you have anything similar that in in terms of feel in cycling, I remember we talked once about the positioning in the certainly in the time trials of like how how far forward you can be in your sort of aero position before you end up losing your strength or whatever. Is there something like that with feel in cycling that's equivalent? Yeah, there's a kind of a few parallels in that respect. So I used to use a metric. I still you do use a metric. What's the CDA? So when you're riding on a on a flat surface. CDA or aerodynamic drag by far your biggest loss. So if you were to measure your power input and your drag, your CDA, your aerodynamic drag coefficient times from the area, the ratio of the two determines how fast you go. Or you can look in power to, to watts or power to drag. There's, yeah, there's, there's many ways to look at it, but you can either create a really speedy performance is, is what you would call it in, in motorsport terms. So something that performs incredibly well. But is, is somewhat unsustainable for longer durations. So if I was to race over, let's say a minute, I could sustain a position or maybe four minutes. But if I was going to go for an hour record, then suddenly you need to, to open that window a little bit because to sustain that position on your neck, on your shoulders, on your back. And just as you muscularly fatigue, if you're going to ride at your, your maximal power for an hour, then obviously by the end, there's a lot of fatigue going on mentally and physically. And the ability to sustain that position becomes harder. So then you start to think a little bit more about the consistency of the position and the comfort of the position. So you, you've got the absolute optimal lowest CDA that you can ever achieve. But then you may take a backward step in absolute terms and say, well, holistically over the entire event, I'm better off because it's more comfortable. My neck hurts less, my shoulders hurt less. The, the helmet could be less aerodynamic, but lighter. So there's less fatigue. Your neck, especially in, in our record where you actually have on average about 25% increase in load. Just to jump in here for the, for the benefit of people listening, Dan uh, has had a go at this hour record and he's going to have another go. Depending on when this show comes out, he may or may not have, have actually done that uh, or not. So I will make sure that if he has, we will update the news here. But yeah, he is actually going for a world record in the hour. So hence it's relevant. I don't worry, it is about five or six months away, so unless you're going to sit on this episode. Oh, yeah, it'll be out, it'll be out before that then, yeah. We'll... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the hour record is it's, it's such a perfectly pure event in that respect, but you need to still think in that relative term of, of having a performance window. And then you can think a little bit more outside of that, like a physiological performance window, and even like a mental performance window. So I had a lot of good discussions. I have a, a couple of 
of uh, engineering, I guess mentors really. One, Keith, he used to, to be the CTO at Megit, which is obviously quite a big, cool engineering firm. And Sam, who, who runs Libertine Free Piston Engines, which is a really cool, it's a, a linear power system to basically without going into loads of details, is where a piston is controlled with electromagnetic fields on the crankshaft. And they're keys like this, and they talk loads of real left-field ideas to me, which is awesome because even though I try to think differently, you still become contained by the sport and you, you don't know what you don't know, really. You, you kind of you, you start to fit the social norms of the sport. So for them to come in and say, what about this? You end up with your own folklore, don't you, in your own head of your own senses of reality based on your own experiences. One of the lovely things about this show is that people, most of the people listening, I would say, well, probably most of them, the majority, the reason they love this show is because they want to learn. And I think you can never stop learning. And so I love, I love hearing that from people like yourself and, you know, all these top level sportsmen and engineers. It's like, what's the biggest thing? I'm always learning. And you're like, well, you've achieved all this. It's like, yeah, no, we're still, <laughs> we're still, we're literally just scratching the surface. So these guys are coming in and giving you great stimulation and ideas then. Yeah, so and that whole Dunning Kruger kind of curve, you kind of feel like you're in this valley of despair, and hopefully you're headed towards the is it the mountain of enlightenment. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's having having people who challenge you because you do become somewhat ingrained, and I think you try and have that that mindset of I'm probably wrong with everything, but you still have to have the confidence, especially within a, a team where people rely on you to say this is what you need to do, and I can tell an athlete. And hand on heart, say this is to the best of my knowledge the thing that you should be doing, but it's probably wrong, <laughs> and like that's not really a very confidence-inspiring thing. So you need to hold that thought in your head, but from a, a perception thing, especially around competition, you need to really wear your heart on your sleeve and, and be adamant that this is the way they need to do things because their confidence in how they execute is heavily grounded in what you tell them. Like you need to take this corner in this way and ride this helmet and use this gearing and pace it this way. And yeah, I believe that the things we're doing, we're doing it to the best of our ability, the best of our knowledge, but it doesn't mean it's in a hundred years time, you'll look back and go, you were so far off the, off the mark. If only you knew this and if only you knew that. And it, it takes yeah, people like Sam and Keith to sit down and say, what about this? And, and, and Keith and Sam both floated this, this idea of the performance window from a physiological perspective. So how can I prepare for an hour record and make sure that my physiology window is, is as high as it can be. And I'm in that window as much as, or as like, as likely that I'm going to be in that window for that day. And what does that look like? And it, it actually took looking back historically at my preparation into events to say, well, actually, if you compare how it performed in training to how it performed in event, they didn't really line up. I was not, I wasn't in that window for those events and to then go, Go back and then say, well, if you're performing well in training and you can't execute that in a race, there's, there's a disconnect there. And, and how do you then address that? So, I mean, the upshot of it was that effectively I, I didn't taper, which is something that a lot of athletes would go, well, why wouldn't you reduce your training load? But I think it was more a reflection on myself as an athlete that I'm not, I probably can't take guidance and advice from other elite level athletes who are full time because I'm not full time. I can't train the hours and the training load that they can. And they can go and do 30, 40 hour weeks, you hear of. And for me to do 40 hour weeks, I think my boss might get a bit annoyed with me because I won't be answering very many emails. I won't be doing very much work. Not wasting the time on the bike, but just the general fatigue level. So actually, I'm relatively 
on the side of overtraining. I'm definitely not. I'm definitely on the undertraining side, which is a nice place to be. If you can push it, you can push it up a bit and you get a positive feedback. Loop. But it does mean that the whole backing off the tapering thing just doesn't work for me. And so it meant that, yeah, I, I kept my foot on the accelerator right up until the, my recent hour record attempt back in October and it was yeah, successful. <laughs> but it, it just took that, why are you doing this? Oh, because everyone tapers. And then you actually look at it and go, but that actually didn't work for me. And the numbers show that. And it takes somebody to give you a little kick. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's funny, actually. There's a mutual friend of ours, a, a guy called Barry Fudge. And I talked to him yeah. about tapering and running. And we've gone a bit left field here. So so forgive <laughs> all the listeners. But we're talking about athletics. So Barry's a physiologist, works in the world of athletics and running. and And... There's a lot of people who run, and he said exactly this thing. It's like, because you're running as an amateur, you don't really need to taper because your volume isn't high enough, basically, <laughs> at any point. So just keep on, you know, keep on going. But it's it's the folklore, it's the conventional wisdom, and that's the example, or that's the reason I mention it, is that, you know, you go on to any of these sports things, they all say, one or two weeks out, you need to start tapering now before your event. And it's really hard to push against that. And I think that's relevant for both cycling and, and motorsports. If you if you push back and say, actually, I want to try this thing that is different or or maybe against the folklore, you, it's hard sometimes. So where do you find the confidence to do that? Uh, I guess I find the enjoyment in the application of the engineering to then go and find those little things. And then I think once you convince yourself, so to, I, I very, 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 very rarely go into competition try something new in competition it, it would take a lot for me to, to do that i try and find the belief in training so whether that's a strategy from a team pursuit or whether that's a piece of equipment or whatever if, if i haven't tried it in training and i'm not confident with the games then i'm not really that person to dice roll anymore i yeah. think three or four years ago i probably would have been because it was a case of why not you think it might be faster but when you get burned you learn that lesson and i think once you're doing your training, to go and do it in competition, it's just, it's repeating, right? And I, I think that's one thing I've always looked for, even in like, if you're scouting an athlete, if someone's done something really incredible, even if they've only done it once, then they can probably do it again. You've just got to find what worked. And to then go into a competition and to, to execute is, is, okay, there's a crowd there and maybe some TV and some journalists, but at the end of the day, it's the same old thing as a training day. The other side of it is just the fact that if you're doing it different to somebody else, then it's an opportunity for you to be gaining an advantage. If you're going to do the same as them, then you've got to do something a whole lot better to be better than them. Like if I repeat everything they've done, then how am I going to be any better? Um, I think on the whole, I try to look at how people, the processes they've gone through to get to where they are rather than what they're doing on, on competition. It's like, how did they get there rather than what are they doing? So don't focus on the outcome, focus on their process, learn from their process and then do their process, but better have your own ideas, have your own sort of tweak on that, whether that's measuring something different, whether that ties in with your own physiology and doing something a little bit bit unique, but at least look at the process that got them there rather than just going, well, they run this tyre or they have this helmet or they drive in a specific way, I'm going to do the same. But you don't know the logic that underpins it. Whereas if you know the process that they went through to get there, you can do the same process. You could get with a totally different result because your car's different, your physiology's different, we're training availability, whatever it might be. It's the process that matters and not the outcome. Have you got an example of a process like that? And then the second question that may or may not be connected is you highlighted there about training, making the distinction between training and a race event. And 
for me that that sort of there's a physiology bit about or a psychology bit about nerves and and how that affects performance and and managing nerves I, I think you know people they go on a, on a practice day and they're not nervous at all and then it gets to a race day and they're literally doing exactly the same thing in the same car on the same track and they're terrified or, or not terrified but they're really nervous and and they do things that they wouldn't have done on the test day so what example of process have you got and how do you manage your nerves I mean, I have nerves, but not to the, probably the same degree as some of our teammates have had. And we, we try to structure specific race replication days where we go through the, the exact same motions. And that it, especially if you have more than four riders and you're trying to pick a rider for a, to enter for a race, then the pressure does come on. And they're really, really good just to, to go through those motions, to go through those nerves, to, to go and execute and to understand how that works. But then going into competition, it's understanding different people's mindsets and what helps them to relax and, and how we can kind of ease those nerves so for example johnny who was our man too was I mean, he's bipolar he's, he should be on absolute cloud nine and it's, it's scary at times like what it can be like in that respect but it's, it can be really good for morale because he cracks jokes and he keeps keeps it light-hearted right up to the moment that you're going up and i'm totally cool with that and it keeps other people charlie and john quite relaxed because if you give them a moment with their own thoughts then it's it's a scary thing especially john and our strategy how we ran it was again quite left field so um we would start faster than john could start and would drop him in the first lap so we're one lap in and john is not on and the reason we do that is we can start faster and i drop into the gap but for him all he's thinking is, I'm going full gas and I'm not getting on. And all I can hope is that I'm close enough and that gap gets filled because if it doesn't, the race is done. Like that, that's it. We've spent many thousands of pounds to fight the other side of the world to race a World Cup and he didn't get on and that's game over. So trying to make sure that he feels confident and to, to do the training sessions that make sure he gets on. So that, that thought never creeps in. He's done it 10 times in training and every time he's got on. If it's the other way around, he's done 10 times in training, got on once, then suddenly... <laughs> The levels really, really do build up. So that, I guess that's, um, yeah, the nerve side. I think as well, I just, I enjoy competition. I think I go into it and it's like, it's not a chance to fail. It's a chance to show all the preparation that I've done. Okay. So it's like, it's a more of a positive mindset than a, I don't want to fail. It's like a, oh no, it's showtime. And it's not just the physiology. I, I enjoy cycling and it's incredibly noted to say before the application of physics. And it was much the same back in motorsport of like the, the effort that you put in. So I used to race quad bikes and carts, TPM Extreme. So I kind of, yeah, I've got an idea of what that's like, but you can, you can put so much time and effort into the preparation of the equipment. And it's nice to go out there and it, in cycling as well. It doesn't have to be the physiology that wins the race. And it doesn't have to be the equipment. It's the, it's the pairing of the two or the ratio of the two. So you can go out there and achieve something awesome. And people cheer about it. And it's like, well, actually, this is because I spent a load of time doing some <laughs> cool testing and optimization. And it's a fun thing to talk about. And that's what really drives my, I guess, passion for the sport. I and mean, people in sport for different reasons. I've always said this, like some people in cycling love the adventure. Some people like, I don't know, cool looking shiny kit. Some people like going to the cafe with their mates. For me, as nerdy as it is, it's the application of all those kind of math labs and spreadsheets and everything else. I kind of empathise a little bit with that because I, you know, I race too, and unfortunately, it's, it's apparent that I'm not as good at driving as I'd like to be compared to some of the people I race with. You know, I'm okay, but it's like you know, you you, you look at other people who do drive, you think, okay, yeah, they're, they're better, but it's like it's not to give up. It's just a case of, well, what can I do to make my life easier so that I can actually compete more readily with those those people 
So it's the equivalent of the what's or whatever. And so, and the approach that sits with me is, is to have that objective understanding, but it also matches with the feel as well. So it's, it's one of those things. It's sort of, yes, we can look at the data and the data says do X. Like, you know, you could be flat out through that fast corner. It's like, okay, <laughs> but I didn't, did I? So there was a reason for that and I wasn't really confident. But, and then you go to the feel side of things and you go, well, what can I change on the car to give me a feeling that's going to improve that? And I think that's when, you know, if you get into the nerdy side of stuff with the physics, it's kind of, well, what do I change? Well, there's quite a bit I could change. So let's do that. And, and once you understand how to manage the balance, for example, of your car, it can give you a, a confidence both as an engineer, but also as a, as a, as a driver as well. And I, I imagine you, by the sound of it, because you've done all this homework in effect and prep, by the time you go in there, you're confident. And as long as you lay down the ride that you anticipate you want to do, you'll, you'll be happy wherever you come. I mean, you can't control who else turns up, can you? Yeah, you, you definitely need to place your value as an athlete in how you execute and not on the outcome. If I crossed the line, I've been like, I railed every corner, I held my position, hit all my power targets, all the segments, what more could I have done? I could finish last. And it's like, that was the best that I had on that day and there's nothing more to it. If you cross the line, you're like, okay, I didn't rail that corner, I had a few beers last week, and whatever else it might be, then that's on you and that's your... Well, your problem is it's something that you need to work on, and it, it's just an area for improvement. And I think, yeah, execution is is a big one. I guess you just got to practice. You've got to be confident going into it that whatever you do on race day is, is you've been there a million times before in training. If you haven't, then you're not going to rise to the level of your expectation. You will fall to the level of your preparation. Oh, I like that. That's a good one. So I've got a question for you about coaching. You sort of touched on it a little bit there. I thought, you know, I wonder, have you done any coaching? Because you're talking about team morale and that sounds like a kind of coaching angle there. Or do you have a separate coach? So I, have, I do have a separate coach for a number of reasons. That It means, on the, at least on the physiology side, where I understand the reasonable amount, but I, I couldn't sit and tell you about like cell signaling pathways or any of that stuff. I'm not a physiologist by trade. I just read a few papers here and there and have a loose idea of what goes on. I definitely revert to speaking to the smart people on that stuff when it when it matters and, and having a coach who understands that. But also you can offload that whole process because from a, a physiology perspective, it's a hard thing to develop and to somebody else have a, a plan that you trust but don't have to micromanage. You just get told today you're doing this and tomorrow you're doing that and make sure that you eat this and eat that and sleep well and everything else. Then you can actually just... Forget about it and focus on, at least in my respect, the stuff that's more enjoyable, <laughs> the engineering <laughs> stuff. So I don't feel I'd be a fantastic coach in the physiology sense, but I feel that from a kind of team management, team morale and planning of an event, I think I really do enjoy that. And I've had some really good experiences. So, I mean, a, a good example of that would be the Candy Shram Women's World Tour team. So they approached me in early 2018, where they'd effectively had this gradual decrement from winning the World Team Time Trial Championships through to, I think, they were like fifth or sixth back in 2017. And the, the team manager, a guy called Ronnie Lauka, who effectively, he just followed what we'd done on the track and was like, I like this. Let's, I'm going to ask them, see if they're, they're keen to help out. And effectively, it was the final year of, of team time trial being what's known as a trade team thing. So instead of it being, yeah, you're kind of your team skies and your jumbo Vismas, it was going to be a national team thing going forward. So you'd represent your nation rather than your, your trade team. So uh, they wanted to go out on a, on a high. 
And so he approached him, approached me and said, we want to win. What's it going to take? And I had about six months and kind of a lot of autonomy to just plan training sessions, team, track aero tests, uh, equipment, and then the actual execution itself. So I went out to Austria and spent about a week beforehand with the, with the team. I was actually riding in the team, which was a completely alien thought where why don't you just sit in the car? It's like, well, I don't know if someone's kicking through from the car. If they're hitting the front and just giving a bit too much too early, I can, I can feel the change in pace. I can feel where the wind's coming from. I can feel who looks strong, who doesn't, who's pulling well, okay. who's breaking well by being in the team. So that was kind of a bit left field, but actually coaching the team through. And it was, it was a hard one. I'm very used to the dynamics of the male team and the female team and their kind of social dynamics, the hierarchy and how they interact is very different. And to make them open up and to accept criticism because they were very worried that criticism would be taken as kind of bitchiness. And that was a hard thing to break those barriers down. But then literally we'd sit down after every session every day and they'd be like, I want a positive thing and a negative thing about you and about the team. And I don't care if you end up pointing fingers because we need to address these things. If we want to win, then you need to all open up and we need to be, we need to have a collective goal here. And it was, it was hard. I, I struggled with it at least at first, but they brought into the process. And Where did you get that approach from? It kind of felt natural. I don't think there was, there was something that really pushed. Push me to do that. I think, yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint out one specific thing. I think it's something that naturally I've tried to do that people need to accept where their flaws are and that you can't hide away from them if you're in a high performance environment. You need to take them head on because you'll just kick them down the street and they'll get worse and worse and worse. And yeah. especially when you're closing in on such a high, high level event where it's all riding. Either you, you sort them, you, you, you look at them straight on and say, this is a problem and we need to sort it. Or that problem is going to manifest itself on the race day and you're going to go, I should have brought it up. But instead of me bringing it up, they bring it up and it was seen as like an internal thing rather than me going, and this wasn't right and this was wrong and we need to do this better. Like, you tell me what you felt. And okay, I'm directing it. Of course, I've seen it. I felt it. I've, I, I can kind of tell where the flaws were, but it wasn't coming from me. It was from them. They would have to critically assess themselves and say, well, actually, yeah. you're right. I do remember that call. I do remember my line was a bit wrong, but I went too hard on that time. And yeah, the numbers do say so, but it just took me to give them a little kick and a little nudge. Well, so, so the interesting thing about, I mentioned about that is because coaching is a strange topic in motorsport, in my humble opinion, because from what I've seen anyway, it's very much like instructing. Yeah. So the first bit of what you were saying, which is, I've seen you do this, this, then this wrong. You need to change it and do that. And then that's that's the end of the conversation. Whereas what you're talking about is more of this kind of coaching approach, I maybe, in the sense of like, well, how do you see yourself of what's going on? And then how do I guide you through that thought process so that you get to a positive outcome and either agree with you or disagree with you? Like you might be overcritical. You might be like being too hard on yourself or you might be too easy on yourself. And that's the that's almost your role. You drop into that sort of guidance piece rather than, yeah, I can see all of these things that are going on, but where do you see yourself? And the definition of coaching is something so it's a funny one. You ask ten people what what's a coach, and they all give you they will all give you a different definition, particularly in racing. And but the, but the question is, it's like it's becoming more prevalent to have a coach. And in fact, I I do a bit of coaching now. I mean, which I love actually. But the question is. What makes a coach? Or people ask me, so, so, so I'm thinking about getting some coaching. What do I look for in a coach? 
And it's a bit difficult because if you are coaching, to take that step back and ask the questions takes confidence in a way because people are expecting the instructional, like, you know, break later here, turn in there, do this, do this, do this. Whereas actually what's more effective, I think if what you're saying is, is, is it, if it comes much more and you're almost teaching the driver or teaching the cyclist to assess themselves because – in my experience, it helps to remember it in the moment rather than in the pits. So, mm-hmm. and if it if it comes from the the driver or the rider, they've thought about it and they've come to that conclusion. And I think exactly as you just said, that's what a coach is. It's not an instructor. And I've seen a lot of coaches uh, <laughs> that are just ex drivers or ex riders who've come into the sport and they say, "I used to do it like this. You're going to do it this way." Yeah. Rather than- or, or, or what, what happens quite often in, in racing is that so they'll get an instructor or a coach in for the weekend and they'll set a reference lap in your car that will be quicker than you'd go. And it's like, well, I, I can drive your car quicker, so you listen to me. It's not a good hierarchy as well to have. Yeah, it's a bit dominating. And I don't think it's good for that relationship. I think you need a coach who encourages you to find the best way yourself. And yeah, they probably can see it. And they, they probably could tell you this is what you need to do. But it's not a productive way, at least long term. You're not going to improve as an athlete if you're just getting to metaphorically fed that fish. You need to be taught how to fish. <laughs> to have that coach teaching you how to fish is the best way forward. And you know, that's what I always try to do. And yeah, Dave Brailsford, who are obviously one of my bosses, and there's kind of a few up there, said exactly the same that he struggled previously, where he used to see something going wrong and he Use the, the metaphor of somebody playing a violin. He'd run in and he'd grab the violin and he'd play it for a bit and then give it back. And it, that's great. Okay, it solves the problem there and then. But that person hasn't learned how to play the violin. It's kind of Yeah, I go again, very good metaphors here. But um, it's just that it's, it's great to try and solve the problem there and then because you know how to. But you need to teach the people so that you can step back and have confidence that they're going to be able to think for themselves and do things for themselves because they understand the logic and the reason that underpins it because they've gone through the process themselves. And I think trying to give the tools to the athlete to do that is really powerful. And as a team manager or team principal, whatever you want to call me as when I was running the track team, I always tried to create tools or things that I could give to the team to ask their own questions, whether that was making my life easier that, for example, I didn't have to run an error test. They could do their own analysis afterwards whether they want to go, what happens if I ride half a lap longer or half a lap shorter or we go out too hard or the air density is good or the air density is bad? What does that mean? Instead of having to ask those questions, they just play about with themselves and then they really understand it because they've gone through that and you've empowered them as an athlete to answer those questions rather than just giving it to them. Right, so a final, final sort of thoughts, really. I mean, so do you think that translates down to someone who's effectively not in a team and they're sort of self-coaching or self-coaching themselves as a cyclist or as a driver? You, you've done that, haven't you? You've, you've done very much on your on your own and self-coached yourself. How do you think people could approach that? Because it's all about you, like you're almost wearing different hats, aren't you? You're sort of trying to get yourself to talk about something and self-analyse, but equally... Do you, I mean, do you keep a journal or is, uh, is it just all of the data or is it in your mind? Or how do you, how have you approached that, that sort of self-coaching bit? You need to build in a time where you, you go back and subjectively and objectively analyze your performance, whether it's a training session or a race, but have that kind of feedback in, in place where you go, what did I do well? What didn't I do so well? And what can I do about it? 
Yeah, so you're gathering data and video and um, some other records. Yeah, okay. yeah, they they all feed in, right? Uh, in motorsport, you can log everything nowadays, which is <laughs> I wish cycling was that good. There's a few things we can do quite well, but honestly, all you listeners, you 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 don't know how good you've got it with some of these cars. When you finish, you've got a data logger at like 20 hertz or 200 hertz. And you've got everything from engine RPMs, wheel speeds, brake turns, the lot. We aren't we aren't there in cycling yet, which is trying. Yeah, that all kind of feeds in to kind of guide the understanding of those things. But you could finish and say, okay, well, I locked up here and I braked too early there and I turned in too late or I turned in too early or I tried to overtake on the wrong side. But it just like sit down, write it down, and then you've got a note of it. And it might be that you never look at it again, but at least you've downloaded it and you've thought about it and it's in your head because you always sit there worried, how can I be better? But if you haven't bothered to actually take stop as soon as while it's still hot while it's still in your mind while it's fresh then you're going to forget half those things and then you'll never actually them before the next one you'll make the mistake again whereas at least learn from the mistake or put a system it doesn't have to be much yeah write it down take 10 minutes after each time five ten minutes and it's great in cycling where you finish an effort you upload it automatically uploads to the cloud you go on your training peaks app and it says how did that feel you want to write a comment a couple of seconds job done yeah, you might not look at it again, but it's, it, at least you thought. Yeah, well, you say that motorsports have got it easy, but we don't have that. And I think that would be really quite good. You know, the data's there, but it's logged on an SD card hidden in the, you know, in the bowels of the car. And you've got to, it's a, data's a bit of a faff and the video's over here. And, you know, it's all got to go on the laptop and then be uploaded to somewhere or, or not. You know what I mean? And there's nothing, well, there's, there are systems, but most of them aren't about that and they're not asking you how does it feel and I think that you know that very much comes as a, an extra thing that people have got to take their own notes or track you know, a track map or something like that and and make their own uh, process there I think yeah so in, in a way we've got it easy because we've got more data and in a way you've got it easy because you've got more of these kind of systems that make it more convenient to sort of do that I think it's because we're coming at the problem from different sides you've got that yeah. kind of human endeavor to technology spectrum and some sports you're sort of running and maybe you're swimming i mean obviously you've got the shoes now that kind of moved it more on the technology spectrum and motorsport formula one especially sits right on the technology end the slight thing likes to think it's more on the human side but it's definitely not it's heading more in the technology direction and yet motorsport is starting to understand the impact of physiology and mental how that all applies and maybe, maybe we'll meet in the middle and there'll be some crossover of different technology companies working at, at both sides because I mean there is a huge amount of crossover most world tour cycling teams have a partner in, in Formula 1 we thank for a partnership with Mercedes so uh, I'll be heading there pretty soon and try to pick their brains on a few things and maybe that'll be heading back there heading back there <laughs> heading back there yeah but, but, you know I mean like I shouldn't talk about contemporary subjects because this is an evergreen show but the, you know uh, they're going to as a former aero guy they're going to they're going to former Mercedes aero guy and current bike guy, they're going to ask you about porpoising cars and and trying to get that managed. Leave us with one or two thoughts that you know you think this is something I see all the time that other people don't seem to do or they don't have the confidence to do it or whatever. And you know, I think it would really help people out. Uh, so I think have a goal, commit, and literally a handful of goals. Don't have twenty five goals. Have a few, bin the rest off, and understand why they matter to you, and then break those goals down. Like understand the constituent parts, how you can measure those things, how you can improve those things, how you can build tools around all of that, and put a plan in place to use that and to go through that plan. Don't be afraid of a bit of professional help. Don't be afraid of 
going out there searching for some local knowledge uh, and being ready, ready to kind of change that plan on the fly, getting kind of learn those lessons because that's what we're about. It's about learning and progressing and not just execution. You need to move forward. Uh, don't be afraid of change. Kind of thing. And yeah, hopefully by the end of that, you've, you've progressed through and kind of enjoy it. I think that's the main thing. Like we're all doing this for fun. <laughs> you, you get I'm, I'm really glad you said that. I'm really glad you said that about the fun thing because we're all doing this as a hobby. It's meant to be fun, and and the amount of glum faces you see on a in a paddock because it's well, I don't know why, but you know that they're, they're not enjoying <laughs> they're not enjoying it for some reason. They're disappointed they didn't get the result they wanted, or or whatever. And it's I, I think that's um, a great way to to leave it. So um, look, thank you so much, Dan. It's been great to get your views, and uh, best of luck with everything you're doing. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It's a good fun chat. You could probably tell it was a real pleasure for me to catch up with Dan. I'm very proud to see all the things that Dan has gone on to achieve. The approaches he is employing in cycling are completely relevant to the problems we are trying to solve in motorsports. I certainly got a lot out of listening to how Dan goes about his role as performance engineer, not afraid to question the status quo, trying to better understand the components of performance, and then setting clear goals to help you improve and then achieve them. Dan certainly is someone who puts his money where his mouth is. Keep an eye out on the news to see if we can break the world record and I wish him every success. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.